This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you so much for that very kind and generous introduction and thank you all for coming this morning. Um, It's great to see everyone. I think this conference has been amazing and the thing that's so exciting to me to see so many people who have never come before as well as people from 40 different organizations and I've been told uh, a thousand more people than expected. It has really been incredible and it's warmed my heart. I want to say a huge thank you to Haymarket Press. They um, and my editor, Anthony Arnov, and Maya Marshall, who worked on it, they really pushed me to write this book and to write, to base it on things that I had been using more in terms of organizing and popular publishing to try to put it together and make it a book. Um, and so they've done an amazing job getting so many of us to write and produce books and to produce books that are directly linked to the struggles that we're engaged in. So um, I have a lot to cover this morning. Um, a big part of this talk is going to be about the opioid crisis and the war on drugs, and it's taken from my essay that's in Asada taught me. But um, I'm working on some new work where I'm really trying to bring together more of the work that I'm doing with union organizing and the conceptualization of the erasure of black working class people. So the, the essay on the opioid crisis was also written in the context of the 2016 election in which the real rise of Trump and racial fascism was explained as the product of working class, quote, discontent. But working class was understood as white in ways that um, were ahistorical and I think quite destructive. So this is growing out of, I'm gonna provide you a frame for thinking about both the destructiveness of colorblind ideology and why it is so difficult to have black working class people be visible as working class and poor. So I'm gonna use the opioid crisis and the war on drugs as a lens to do that and to talk about racial capitalism and why this has become an organizing frame and then link that back to these questions of black working class fate over the last 50 years. Um, So um, so the stakes of the subject of what I'm going to talk about today uh, is to address what many of you have heard and probably thought yourself about the stark contrast between how black consumers and sellers of drugs were treated and understood in the 1980s and 90s during the so-called crack epidemic versus their white counterparts during the first two decades of the opioid crisis. This is a talk, this talk is an attempt to provide a wider and broader way to think about uh, this issue than simply acknowledging it as the obvious truth that it is. I'm going to do this through the lens of racial capitalism. 
The enormous and devastating consequences of the crack crisis are one of the best examples, but there are many. My hope is to integrate the deaths of despair framework into thinking about the enormous consequences of drug war prosecutions and why black people's vulnerability and economic precarity was ignored in favor of their white counterparts. I'm going to start by just giving an overview of the idea of racial capitalism. I can talk about the details of it more as an analysis in the talk, but just to give you some a kind of working definition to think about the origins and overview. So racial capitalism, it is, I think it has become the core concept used by both research and organizers in the abolition movement and other movements for racial and labor justice. Its core idea is that capitalist culture and economy is inseparable from histories of racial dispossession of land and labor. In fact, that race itself has been centered to the emergence of capitalism. So where did this term come from? Um, its direct genealogy is traced to South Africa in the 1970s. Uh, it emerged a decade before the overthrow of apartheid, several decades before. Marxist activists and radical members of the black consciousness movement developed this framework to understand the resilience of apartheid rule. In the United States, it was first applied by Cedric Robinson in his groundbreaking book, Black Marxism, which laid the conceptual groundwork for racial capitalism and how it emerged out of a collaborative political work in South Africa to understand why portions of the white working class and black middle class supported a racial state presided over by white capitalist class. And on the converse, how the entire South African economy built on white and Boer supremacy ideology in which African populations were subjected to forced labor, Bantu stands, and were the de facto working class and 90% majority. In his book, Neoliberal Apartheid, Socio sociologist Andy Clarno argues that at the core of racial capitalism is the recognition that racialization and capital accumulation are mutually constitutive, that combine in a dynamic and specific formation. The processes of dispossession, coerced labor, sexual violence, forced reproduction, documented by historian Deborah Gray White, Arnia Woman, remind us that race class, gender, and sexuality can never be separated or understood in isolation from one another. Race is the modality through which classes lived. The famous quote from Stuart Hall that I think many people have invoked during this conference. Race is a material force and structure that affects life outcomes. And you might think about this uh, in the context of uh, Professor Gilmore's talk yesterday the definitions that she provided of her understanding of racism, which is that it is state sanction or extra legal production and exploitation of a group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. And it wasn't an accident that she's trying to link the coal mines of Wales to the fight against building new jails and prisons in East Los Angeles. So this is a kind of geography that's important for providing us a broader way to understand race while still situating it in local context. So without going into too much of the details of black Marxism, which warrants many sessions in and of itself, 
Cedric Robinson lays out this kind of broad geography where he actually argues that the formation of racial ideas predates capitalism, and it can also be understood even through sort of the West European periphery, that places like Wales and Ireland become core foundations of where racial ideology is formed, as well as the sites of the transatlantic slave trade. So the context in which Cedric Robinson applies racial capitalism was always done in a global framework. But I'm gonna be talking about how to adapt it to something that I'm studying. I think the challenge for many of us as organizers and researchers and writers is to figure out how to adapt racial capitalism to our particular needs of analysis and struggles. Okay, so starting with how race made the opioid crisis. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, between 1999 and 2017, opioid overdoses, that is illicit pharmaceuticals, killed nearly 400,000 people with 68% of those deaths linked to prescription medications. If you include heroin, fentanyl, and other illicit drugs, those numbers jump. The most recent numbers are 564,000 people have died from opioids since 19, between 1990 and 2020. Uh, as is being said, this is the largest drug crisis in our history, and um, it has its roots in a systematic marketing of opioids that was informed by racial ideas. So how did race make the opioid crisis? In, 1990, in the 1990s, Purdue Pharma created an aggressive marketing campaign to convince doctors and state regulators of the safety of a new class of time-release opioids. Given their status as Schedule II controlled substances, Purdue faced potentially enormous pushback, especially at a time at that when a number of people were being incarcerated for drug offenses at an all-time high. However, a major shift had taken place in regulatory policy a decade before that made this possible. In the 1980s, President Reagan initiated a radical program of corporate deregulation that opened the door to a new pharmaceutical mass marketing. Reagan's second American revolution slash government oversight pushed through expedited review by the FDA and for the first time allowed direct um, to consumer advertising for pharmaceutical drugs. Amazingly, the deregulation of big pharma took place while the Reagan administration was launching a bombastic second war on drugs that established a new standard for illicit drug prohibition. One his successors, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, not only met but exceeded. This potent mix of racialized drug prosecution and corporate empowerment created the environment in which Purdue and other companies sought out new commercial strategies for marketing opioids. So when Purdue introduced OxyContin in 1996, it proceeded with an awareness of both the opportunities and potential pitfalls. The company developed a number of marketing strategies to increase sales and navigate the deeply segregated waters of drug consumption. In order to market OxyContin, a long-term release opioid that contained the active ingredient oxycodone, Purdue created an expansive network of drug sales. And I think this may be a history that many of you are familiar with. Dopesick does an excellent job on it, but thinking about these, the ways that white opioids were sold in such large numbers. Sales representatives re received huge uh, bonuses between $15,000 and $240,000 a year based on their overall coverage. But I want to revisit the context in which this is happening. 
and that you could simultaneously have this vast expansion of drug sales where the United States is consuming 80% of licit opioids in this period in the world while prosecuting a war on drugs directed overwhelmingly at black, brown people. And my favorite example of this is actually Rudolph Giuliani. Um, many of the drug warriors were involved in the process of deregulation. So in 19, I'm sorry, in 2000, as mayor of New York, Giuliani prosecuted and put in jail over 50,000 people for the consumption of marijuana. Two years later, he was hired by Purdue Pharma to orchestrate a lobbying campaign to prevent the regulation of opioids after the hot, the rising death rates had been seen. So whether it's Reagan or Giuliani, precisely the kinds of people prosecuting a racialized drug war were involved in the corporate deregulation of the selling of opioids. So how do we use a racial analysis and a racial capitalist analysis to understand this? According to public health scholars, Helena Hansen and Julie Netherland, Purdue's success hinged not, on, not only on this aggressive sales campaign, but also on a racially bifurcated understanding of addiction. Drug sales representatives directed advertisement to overwhelmingly rural, white, suburban, rural areas to avoid the stigma of racially coded urban drug markets. By crafting a geographically distinct white consumer base, understood as the antithesis of hardcore urban drug users, read non-white, targeted by the wars on drugs and gangs, the company both benefited and reinforced the racial ideology underwriting punitive campaigns. Not surprisingly, the regions that initially showed the highest rates of opioid abuse in the early 2000s, rural Maine, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Western Pennsylvania, had overwhelmingly white populations. Um, it was termed uh, at the time by the New York Times, hillbilly heroin. Racial disparities in healthcare access, discriminatory prescribing patterns among physicians, and a self-conscious strategy by pharmaceutical companies that cultivated, quote, legitimate white consumer markets all contributed to the racial demographics of the opioid crisis. A key reason that the pharmaceutical companies could market such a powerful sustained analgesic to treat non-malignant pain was that they made assumptions about their intended consumers. Quote, the disproportionate uptake of OxyContin by rural and suburban prescribers in majority white states is notable in light of historical hostility of regulatory agencies such as the DEA to the expansion of opioid use, argued Hansen and Netherland. Urban markets would have, been, would have brought with them race and class imagery of illicit use that may have expanded prescription of OxyContin for moderate pain, a hard sell to regulators. So this is just giving some background, the scaffolding of the opioid crisis. Um, in 2015, two economists came out with a study called Mortality and, and Morbidity in the 21st Century. And this study became really important, of political, important to political discourse in the year before Trump was elected because it was an argument that white working class mortality rates had increased over the last 30 years at a faster rate than black people. So black people were still dying at higher rates, but this increase in the rate of mortality increased for white working class populations. Quote, 
The combined effect means that mortality rates of which whites with no more than a high school degree were around 30% lower than mortality rates of blacks in 1999, grew to be 30% higher than by black people. This was attributed to higher rates by death, overdose, alcoholism, and suicide. It had a strong political valence and was often cited to help explain the rise of Trumpism because of the core suffering of the white working class, so the argument went. But there was a serious problem with Case and Dean. They had been studying this increase in mortality, and what they did is compare whites without high school degrees to all black people, undifferentiated by class. And I thought that this is just one of the most powerful examples that essentially class is reserved for white populations and that we are only defined by race. And this had real political consequences. I'm sure you all remember this language about deaths of the despair. In some ways, it's the framing of Vince Gilligan's work of Breaking Bad, of a lot of the kind of political backlash. It's this mourning of white downward mobility. And I'm going to talk more and give some stats about how to think about the economic differences between black and white working class people because they are stark, with black people having significantly less income, wealth, and higher mortality rates. This was such a profound example of the erasure of black, poor, and working class people and their experiences of depths of despair because implicit in this idea is that whites are understood in class terms and black people are only understood through race. So what would a deaths of despair framework look like for black working class populations over the past 50 years, and especially during the crack crisis? Remedying Case and Deaton's singular focus on the white working class requires a closer look at black historical experiences of deindustrialization, high unemployment, post-industrial job displacement, accompanied by racially based criminalization and incarceration. And I'll just say in Asada taught me, I have a really detailed discussion of this and in, in paying for punishment about how to think about the economics of race and the economic consequences of targeted incarceration, targeted racialized incarceration. So I'm not gonna talk about it explicitly in this piece, but I'm glad to talk about it in the question and answer. In the years after the Voting Rights Act's passage, two vectors of structural racism economic marginalization, the formal economy, and extreme disproportionate prosecution and incarceration, including for drug charges, have shaped the health chances of black people, black working class people. Starting the aftermath of World War II, many cities in the US experienced deindustrialization and job loss in the manufacturing sector, coinciding with the largest period of black population movement in the nation's history, known as the Second Great Migration. Black and urban became synonymous as Southern migrants to the North and West concentrated in American cities. They faced both racial exclusion from labor unions that would have enhanced their job prospects and security and outsourcing of manufacturing to right to work states, the Sun Belt and other parts of the world. Since then, black workers have suffered unemployment rates that far surpassed those of white workers. During the height of the crack crisis, black unemployment stood at 15% total and black youth unemployment at 45%. The decline in life expectancy noted by Case and Deaton over the past 20 years was evident much earlier over the past century of, of our mass displacement from workplaces and residences. Disproportionate incarceration of black populations further reinforced their marginalization in labor and housing markets. 
building a longstanding pattern of racialized drug prosecution from the 1914 Harrison Narcotics Act to the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. By the 1970s, the U.S. entered an era of mass incarceration that ended with soaring rates of black female confinement and one in four black men facing some form of correctional control. President Richard Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs in 1971 inaugurated a new era in policing and imprisonment in which he explicitly understood anti-drug policy as a way to criminalize black people in a time of widespread political mobilization. John Ehrlichman, um, from the, Reagan, from the Nixon administration said the following to researcher Dan Baum in the 1990s, looking back on the origins of the war on drugs. Quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war anti left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing them both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. The state sanctioned campaign against black, so-called black pushers inspired a new federal and state legislation mandating minimum sentences of 15 years to life in prison for possession and sale of drugs. Under the Reagan administration, the 1986 and 1988 Anti-Drug Abuse Acts inaugurated racialized sentencing disparities for crack versus powder cocaine. Quote, few realize that almost no white people were ever targeted or charged with federal, from federal authorities. This is despite the federal government's own data from NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, documenting that over two-thirds of people who use crack were white. Los Angeles Times reporter Dan Weichel notes that among, black, among white people using crack, prosecutors shunted their cases into the state system, which had much lower rates of conviction and sentences. Nothing speaks more profoundly to how the state artificially constructed segregated drug markets than federal prosecutions of crack use. Few realize that almost no white people were ever charged with crack offenses by the federal authorities. I have to say, when I first saw this article, I was just blown over that I'm studying Los Angeles, which was the epicenter of the crack crisis. And in this period from the passage of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986, through the passage of Bill Clinton's uh, crime legislation in 1984, not a single white person in the entire Los Angeles metropolitan area was prosecuted on federal crack charges. So you have state charges and then you have federal, but the federal system, 98% of cases in federal, uh, in the federal system end with conviction. So you face both, both much longer sentences of certainty of conviction and this extreme, the most extreme racial disparity, even more so than at the state level. So to me, that is just a, another very concrete example where we can talk about racial disparity as written into law, as well as comparing illicit pharmaceutical epidemic of white opioids that entails majority white populations in the period I'm talking about. I will say that, and we can talk about this in question and answer, the death rates have shifted since uh, 
I'd say, I think they began to shift in early like 2010, the first decade. And now black and brown rates of overdose have exceeded those of whites. So I am talking about a particular period, which is the genesis of the opioid crisis and illicit pharmaceuticals, but it has now taken a life, taken on a life of its own. But that differential, both um, understanding of how they legitimize mass sales of pharmaceuticals because white people were somehow magically protected from addiction, and then simultaneous this incredible punishing war on drugs, war on crime, and ultimately war on black families. So um, what are the lessons that we draw from this? The first is that it is absolutely crucial that we revisit our understandings of race and class to push back against the tendency of naturalizing working class as white through colorblind ideology. Be it graduation rates from college, income, or wealth, it is very clear that Black and Latinx populations are overrepresented among working class people. The core life of race is a material one. Today, roughly a fifth of African Americans, that's 20%, uh, according to the Economic Policy Institute, hold bachelor's degrees. So one fifth compared with 36% for whites and 59% for Asian Americans. So I thought those numbers were really sobering, that in thinking about the overrepresentation among working class people, if you define it in this case by holding a bachelor's degree, there are other ways to do it, and we can talk about that. But that's the one that Case and uh, Dean used. Um, your average black household income today is $45,000 compared to a national average of 65,000 with Latinx populations making 55,000 and 74,000 for non-white Hispanics. So the economic indicators are very clear about this material life of race. Second, the deaths of despair framework which was used could easily have been applied to the crack crisis in which there was a substantial increase in black working class mortality rates during the crack crisis of the 80s and 90s. Um, in looking at black life expectancy rates, there's a very sharp drop in the 80s and 90s, and it had to do with higher rates of infant mortality and also with homicide rates. But um, at the time, because Black people were being viewed through a criminal lens and not a human lens. This couldn't be understood in that way. And one of the things I'm doing in my book, Capitalism Plus Dope, is to try to reclaim this history of black cash-born working class people after the civil rights movement and to think about how that served as a context uh, for the crack crisis, both drug use and drug sale, but the kinds of vulnerabilities that have been elided when only focusing on the portion of us that were upwardly mobile. That's really important. I think particularly in the post-Barack Obama era, um, the understanding of what black progress has been um, is kind of summed up in a class that I taught at Rutgers with Deborah Gray White called From Plantation to White House. Mm -hmm. So it is a triumphalist narrative in which there's a focus on a portion of the population, including myself, I, I think, and many of the people in this room where we have had enormous opportunities open to us. But if you really look at the vast experience of the majority of black people, the last 50 years has been a brutal and agonizing one. 
So reclaiming that black working class history and trying to understand crack through that lens, not only through the lens of addiction or criminalization, but how it fits in with the economic fate of the majority of us since the civil rights and black power movement. Okay, third point, current lawsuits against drug manufacturers like Purdue and Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals by municipalities and states who are trying to recoup the cost of health care and expenses and foster care from the opioid epidemic. What is this? This is a form of reparations. And I think it's really helpful to talk about it and to frame it in that way and to think about how that helps provide support for our own campaigns for reparations. Because I think the lessons from racial capitalism are learned to be not only in the origins of the opioid crisis, but also in the responses to it and how we can leverage some of these successes in our own fights for reparations. Finally, we must push back against the racist, racist logic that has long underwritten prohibition efforts while including and even assisting the pharmaceutical companies attempt to expand its reach. Um, in the larger essay in the book, Race Made the Opioid Crisis, I actually start out by talking about the drug war under Trump. And one of the things that's happened is that what started out as illicit pharmaceutical uh, um, crisis has now moved into illicit drugs. And so we're seeing a ramping up of the war on drugs that had its origins in these corporate marketing strategies. So reclaiming that early history and thinking about the culpability of corporations and profits that were made from selling OxyContin and other white opioids that were the real genesis of our current opioid crisis because Americans have very short memories and this history is often forgotten. And people that I know, and I think many of you know, have been affected by the crisis in fentanyl and it's being narrated as a crisis that was created by immigration and the border. When the truth is we can trace a straight line back to the Reagan revolution, deregulation, and the kinds of politics, of course, that uh, the current Republican Party is celebrating. Finally, we must push back against the racist logic that has underwritten prohibition efforts while including and even assisting the pharmaceutical industry's attempt to expand its reach. Phantasms of drug sale and consumption continue to animate deeply felt national narratives, demarcating the line between white and black, native and foreign, innocent and guilty, medical and recreational, deserving and undeserving, licit and illicit. The Trump administration, like its Democratic and Republican predecessors, through some of its most destructive symbols of racial animus from the war on drugs repertoire. One of the most important lessons to be learned from viewing the opioid crisis and the drug war through the lens of racial capitalism is that the privileges of whiteness come at great social cost, not only for those excluded from them, but even for those who possess them. As our nation witnesses a significant drop in life expectancy due due to high rates of suicide, overdose, and COVID, an honest reckoning with the true nature of power and culpability has never been more urgent. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. 